Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. Hello, this is the Leader's Prep for Come Let Us Worship, Psalm 22 and 23. I am starting on page 44. And in the Arranging the Flowers section, in the bottom paragraph, I think it would be good, and we are continuing to point out the structure, the flow, the story of the Psalms. So it says in Psalm 21.7, the key verse of that Psalm, the stage is set for an example of the king trusting the Lord in the deepest darkest circumstances, that of his own death. That's what we're going to see in Psalm 22, <clears throat> especially as we see that it's about Jesus. So you might write out Psalm 21.7 and just read that. The king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Lord, he will not be shaken. And then the last sentence of that paragraph, Psalm 22, truly testifies that through the loving kindness of the Lord, the, oh, you don't need to read that because that, if either read the sentence or read the Bible verse, but you don't need to read both. So that's um, an introduction and beginning and just um, bringing attention to the flow of the book of Psalms. So we come to Psalm 22. And it begins with a deep lament. You can see that little phrase in the second line. And then in the third line in the middle, this sentence says, It is a picture of one who is trusting in the Lord, even during the most distressing time in his life. And Psalm 22 includes an exciting look at the promises of his future. I think that if you're just reading Psalm 22 on its own and you're just reading along, you might think, hold on now. There's some really hard stuff in here, and then I don't get the rest of this psalm. The, the end of it doesn't make sense to me. So I hope that becomes more clear now that we've had an in-depth study of it. And then you might mention the last sentence of that introductory paragraph. Psalm 22 describes the mysterious agony one can experience even when trusting the Lord. And that's a very important lesson. And that's one of the major applications that we will take away from this psalm and how to look at our own lives. And there are two critical things going on here that um, this psalm becomes biblical evidence, um, proof for two situations. One of them is that this is an example. The psalm is an example to those who would say that Christianity has, that if you're a Christian, you have no problems. Well, that's not true. And this psalm is also an example to us who are Christians and we're struggling and we're saying, why is this happening? And how is God letting this happen to me? And is this okay? So uh, it's evidence, it's explanation might not be quite the right phrase to use, but this psalm shows us that a believer and the one who is God himself, Jesus, even suffered. So a believer can suffer. We just have to remind ourselves of that. That's the deal. 
on the top of page 45. Give ladies an opportunity to share if they want to, responding with their reflections, questions, prayers, or praise. Also encourage you that if they ask questions, you should be prepared to either say, we'll, t- we'll get to that question, we'll talk about that more, you know, you know, we, we address that in the study, or if it's a question that comes up and we don't have an answer to it, don't get bogged down here trying to answer it. Maybe, you know, like, hey, that's a good question or um, a good observation and um, let's follow up on that as additional study. I just, I, I want ladies to have an opportunity to share, but this is just a place where we need to be really careful of not getting stuck and trying to answer things that we don't, that we're not prepared to answer. That's what I'm also I'm mentioning to you. God is in control. We are trusting the Holy Spirit to lead us. So I'm going to move along and um, look at the italicized paragraph at the uh, almost at the end. I've I'm adding some words here. So we considered if this relates to any specific experience of David's or if it is solely a prophetic account of Christ's suffering. And that's actually one of the things that came up in my reflection, like, hey, did David have an experience that made him write this? But we saw some observations from Dr. Lawson, and I want to highlight two points, not the whole paragraph, but first of all, there are no recorded events in the life of David that correspond to this psalm. And then thirdly, The psalm contains no mention of the psalmist's personal sin. And that is the bigger um, clue to me that this is a prophecy, just spirit-inspired David to write this. And I'm going to mention just briefly in my lecture that this psalm is poetry and the language that's used is choppy which indicates grief, and some of the language and phrases are a little bit mysterious. So that also leads me to see it as Spirit-inspired prophecy. Now, after we're, we're getting that kind of settled, what do you learn from 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11? The prophets made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's just a fascinating verse to me. I mean, the the prophets who were writing this, they were like, who's it going to be? When's it going to happen? What is this about? They made careful searches. So we're going to study this psalm as a prophecy of Christ's sufferings and last phrase of that italicized paragraph, we're also going to find an appropriate way to express our pain through the example that's given in Psalm 22. So you were to record the phrases that express the agony that Christ was experiencing, according to Psalm 22, 1 through 18. How did he describe God? I have my God, and he wasn't answering He was holy. He is enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's the deliverer of the Israelite fathers. I have that from verse 4. 
and he is the one who birthed him. That would be 9 and 10. Um, my God from my mother's womb. That would be the phrase. And that's all I've got. You might have more, which is fine, but that's what I've got. How does he describe himself? He's groaning. He has no rest. He's a worm. He's reproached by man. He's despised by people. Um, he's mocked or taunted, challenged to trust God. That's what um, verse 7 and 8 we need to understand that verse 8 is a quote of what the people are saying, the quote of the people in 7. So hopefully your translations have that. Mine has a little, like, they wag the head, comma, saying, quote, commit yourself to the Lord. If that's not in there, that would be kind of confusing to read. If those punctuation marks and phrases aren't in their translations. Um, okay, so. How does he describe himself? Also, he is one who trusts God. I have that as verse 9. And from verse 11, he's asking for help. Verse 12, he's surrounded by enemies. Verse 14, he's poured out like wax. Bones are out of joint. His heart is melted like wax. His strength is dried up. Verse 15, he is dying. It says, you lay me in the dust of death. Um, verse 16, his hands and feet are pierced. And you can see all his bones, so I wrote emaciated. And there may be some more phrases that people, ladies, have um, given you in answering this question, and that's fine. And how does he describe those around him? Verse 7 and 8. They're sneering, taunting him. Verse 12, strong bulls of Bashan are surrounding him. Verse what is it, 13, surrounded by those who are roaring like lions. And verse 16, surrounded by dogs. And that is not a nice puppy dog. That is uh, like a mongrel, a wild dog. Um, they are the band of evildoers. So he is... Um, surrounded by really mean people and that's putting it lightly on page 46 based on these observations do you think that this cry for help came from a brief encounter with suffering or a prolonged one what do the ladies think what do you think and they might just have a one-word answer but if they just say a long one or a short one or whatever you might say why my answer, I have written, that it's a prolonged suffering. He's wiped out. He's thirsty. He's weak. He's thin. He's dehydrated. There's blood loss. So those were just the thoughts that led me to, or why I said it's prolonged. Um, but we know with Jesus, and we're going to see on the next page, this um, amount of time. It's almost 24 hours. So that kind of sounds like a short period of time, but... Oh my goodness, I mean, I would not want one minute of what Jesus endured. So, that's 24 hours sounds terribly long. And when you are sitting with someone and you're seeing them suffer, every minute is very long, even if it's not long on the clock. We considered a series of contrasts. So, let's talk about them 
How did God respond to the Israelite fathers compared to how he responded to Christ? From verse 4, it said they trusted God and he answered them. And verse 9 and 10, this, uh, we, we know this is talking about Jesus, so I'm just going to say Jesus. Trusted from birth, but now he's being forsaken. So um, that's the difference. It's a contrast. And then, how did God's response to Christ compare to how his enemies responded to him? From verse 1, God forsook him, and he wasn't answering, uh, verse 1 and 2. So, in a sense, you could say God was silent. And then from verse 6, the men around him are reproaching him, despising him, sneering at him, um, wagging the head and saying this and that. And um, then the other parts where they're really around him like, oh, verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. So the enemies are loud. They're talking to him. So that's a contrast. So kind of silent versus loud. And then how did Christ's present experience compare to the time of his birth? I've kind of already mentioned this, but the present experience was suffering and misery and God forsaken and God not answering. But at his birth, we get the sense, we see that God was present. I mean, God brought him forth. And um, verse 9 and 10, upon you I was cast from my birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breasts. So... Um, At present, it seems that God has abandoned and forsaken him, and that's different from the time of his birth. Now, in the next paragraph, um, tell them that they didn't have to record an answer, but let's just stop and consider this question. How often do you stop and think about the death of Christ and the agony that he endured? Do you? Just stop and think about it sometimes. Outside of Easter, do you think about the suffering and death of Jesus? I hope there will be a little bit of comment. And then just close that little bit of time with this last sentence from the paragraph. Jesus did not deserve this suffering And when we say these things, I know they're written on the page, the ladies have read them, we know them, but I think that that is a statement of praise to Jesus. And I also think it is a statement of praise that Satan doesn't want to hear. So I'm happy to just state it again for the record um, and give God, give Jesus the glory and honor and praise and declaration that he was innocent and he did not deserve this suffering, but he did it for us. In the middle of the bottom questions, it says, please reflect on the agony Christ experienced as as described in Psalm 22 and the passages you just read, the Matthew and John passages, and record your thoughts. So we love to have some ladies just share their responses, and this was a time to pause and think about the death of Christ. So um, what did they have to say? 
And at this point, when I was reading the, um, one of the things I have said is that it is incomprehensible, painful, and it's always hard for me to understand how the Roman soldiers were so cruel to him, um, how the Jews were so blind and vicious, and then to consider Jesus and just be in awe of his strength and perseverance. And we should not say that he had a high pain tolerance because this was pain. It, he, he felt it. He suffered. We can't even imagine what torture this was. And under this torture, he did not crack under that pressure. He didn't give up. He didn't yell out. Um, I don't think I usually use the word torture, but uh, that was a very vivid word to me at this point in time. Next question at the bottom of page 46. In the midst of his agony, according to Psalm 22, 11 and 19 through 21, Christ made several requests of God. What were they? I have from 11, be not far from me. Uh, 19, you, O Lord, be not far off. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Uh, from verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth. And then in the middle of 21, we're going to see a change. So they might say something about from the horns of the wild ox and you, you um, um, answer me. They might just, I'm trying to see what, because my NAS says from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. At the top of page 47, what we have are examples of simple, uncomplicated pleas for help. And I wrote them kind of in my own words. Be with me. Help me. Hurry. Save me. And we can pray this way. And you probably already do pray this way. Um... I don't think you need to ask anything about the um, little prayer section there. So if somebody really wants to share, they'll stop you and go back to it and let you know. But I would continue on and just skip that, is there anything, question, and go to the next italicized paragraph and the last phrases where it says, Christ experienced agony. It was an eternity of suffering in a defined period of time. So that kind of goes to whether this was a brief encounter or a prolonged one. And I've already made some comments about that. So now we have a question. And the first question, have you experienced a time of suffering? That could lead people, the ladies, to tell stories that could get a little bit long. And while that would be meaningful... I would like for us to skip that question and focus on, and you might use that word, focus on the second question here. What is your perspective on how long you're willing to wait for God to answer your cries for help? Because that's how we want to consider and apply this psalm and what we're learning and increase our faith rather than... Um, now, looking back may be telling of God's faithfulness, and that's very good, and that does help increase our faith. But I'd like to challenge our thinking with that second question. So focus on that. What is your perspective on how long you're willing to wait? 
and um, how to, you know, really press them to, to get some answers for that. And they may not have focused on that part of the question. So, um, how long? Well, for me, I said, as long as God desires and just keep waiting and crying out to him and trusting and just keep doing what he tells me to do. Um, and I might squirm, but I need to keep waiting. And I pray right now that God will give me the um, patience and endurance and perseverance to keep holding fast to him during that time of waiting. Next question. What expressions from Christ in this psalm do you think may help you endure a time of intense, unexplainable suffering? And that's, we might have that. That's when it is the hardest, when there just seems to be no explanation. What's the purpose? Why has this come on me? Um, why isn't God doing something? I think that's, that's the unexplainable part. Why isn't God doing something? So um, the way that I answered this question was saying that I, it helps me to know it's okay to say why and still trust. So to ask God why is okay. And from verse 3, you are holy, God. Uh, that's a statement that would help me to acknowledge God's character from verse 9 and 10, to acknowledge, you have been my God, you are my God. Um, from verse 11, no one can help me but you, God. And um, even from verse 15, to say, my strength is gone. Like, I don't have it. It's not in me. So um, those are just what stood out. And I'm wondering where those phrases could be. It's like, okay, next time of really hard suffering, go to Psalm 22. How did Jesus express himself? And let me ex use those expressions. That's the mental note that we should all make right now. Now, and you might want to write this in the um, edge, notice a big change. In the middle of this italicized paragraph, in the Hebrew and certain translations, verse 21 ends on a note of triumph. You have answered me. That's what the Hebrew says. And the whole mood of the psalm changes from then on. It would be interesting to know if anyone's Bible actually said that. I have mentioned that I'm using the complete Jewish Bible and I was delighted to read Psalm 22 and in it and see that it actually has that phrase. You have answered me. Um, so now we're looking at this shift in the psalm and how God answered and what the answer was and what the results of the of God's answers answer was. Verses 22 through 24 imply Christ's resurrection. So Regarding Christ's resurrection, and this is also, um, we're helped in Hebrews 2 to see that it does apply to Jesus. To whom will he speak, and what will he speak of? It says he'll speak to his brethren. Who are they? We are they. Disciples, believers. 
And what will he speak? He will speak of the name of the Lord, and he will praise the Lord in the midst of the assembly. And and I don't know if that's referring to Jesus standing in the middle of the disciples saying, it's me, you know, and look here, my hands and feet. But that's the picture that comes to my mind, the first one after his resurrection. But also in the future, we will be gathered together and Jesus will be We'll all be together in the assembly and we'll be praising Jesus and praising God. So um, this could be referring to immediately following his resurrection in Jerusalem and Galilee, but also the future. Um, and uh, this just also caught my eye from verse 20. Um which verse is it? Oh, it's not in my NAS. One of the versions says he will sing praises to God. And I was like, ah, we'll be singing with Jesus. And the disciples have already done that right after the Last Supper. And they probably did it more than once. So um, we'll get to do that sometime. And um, how did verse 22 through 24 imply the resurrection? That's not a question, but I wanted to mention it. I think that it's implied because Jesus was not defeated by death or his enemies. And verse 24 says that God heard him and helped him. So God answered him. He did something. And then we see Jesus singing and praising in the assembly. Last question on page 47. Verse 26 begins with a description of the thousand year reign of Christ, which is the millennial kingdom. What do believers have to look forward to? And um, verse 26 says the poor and the needy will eat. People will seek and find and praise the Lord. Verse 27, all the earth, all nations will praise the Lord. Verse 28, the Lord will rule over the nations. All will worship and bow down before him. So... Those are just a few brief comments about the Millennial Kingdom that are supported in other passages elsewhere in Scripture. On page 48, this psalm, which began with such dark despair, ends with a grand display of praise to the Lord because of his miraculous work on the cross. What does Psalm 22, 30 through 31 declare? Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. And then um, just um, you can read this or even say, did you know that the last words of this psalm are equivalent in meaning to the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. He has performed it. He did it. It's finished. Those all communicate the same thing. The work has been done. So exciting. Um, so that's just, just praise God because Jesus did the work that he came to do. And now we'll move to Psalm 23. Do you see this psalm as a gift to you? That's how I described it. I hope so. And if anyone would like if anyone would like to share their responses, their reflections, comments about Psalm 23, give them the opportunity to do so. And then 
Um, we'll move to the middle of page 49. What is the very first word of this psalm, and is it repeated at any time? It's Yahweh, and yes, it's repeated in the last phrase, verse 6, the house of Yahweh. I'm like, I don't think I missed any other one. <laughs> so what does this tell you? It's an inclusio. This is the theme of the psalm. That means that this, so who is being referred to as the shepherd? The psalm is about who Yahweh is and what he does, and it's about dwelling in his presence. Uh, that is still just kind of, that's one of the things that I've learned about Psalm 23, and it still is just fascinating to me to look at this psalm as Yahweh is my shepherd. And it's fascinating to me to look at this psalm being a prayer of Jesus, which we're going to get to that, and this is a messianic psalm, so Jesus can be praying and living out this psalm, and we want to capture that. But first, we're focusing on God the Father, who declared and proved that he was the shepherd of Israel. That sentence is in the middle of that italicized paragraph. So please go around the circle and ask ladies to share the answers to these cross-references. What do you learn about who the shepherd is and what he does from the following verses? And they don't all have a what he does. Some of them are just who. Genesis 48. Israel is speaking, and that's Jacob as he's blessing one of his sons. And he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was his shepherd for his whole life. So what did God do? He shepherded him and he was with him his whole life. Uh, Jacob was a shepherd and he, here he is calling God his shepherd. And I think that's the earliest reference of God being shepherd. Genesis 49, the mighty one of Jacob is the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Oh, and that, that one's throwing me because at this point it's like, wait a minute, Israel as a nation isn't really um, established yet because we still have Jacob and his sons and they haven't even been in Egypt yet. So when this says the rock of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob is the shepherd, the rock of Jacob, whose name was Israel. i just kind of processing that as I'm seeing it. Deuteronomy 2, 7. Moses is speaking to the Israelites. The Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So that's why this verse is here, because Psalm 23 says, um, I shall not want. I have all that I need. You lack nothing. And also, there was the Lord your God journeying with them, leading them through the wilderness like a shepherd does. If Deuteronomy 2.7 wasn't quite clear of how God was a shepherd, Psalm 78 is a description of that exact same period of time where it says the Lord led his people like sheep and guided them like a flock in the wilderness and led them safely and they were not afraid. Then we have Psalm 80. The shepherd of Israel guided Joseph like a flock 
and he sits enthroned on the cherubim. So here again is an emphasis or just a very clear description that Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. Psalm 103, or 100 verse 3. The Lord is God. We are his people, his sheep. So if we're his sheep, then he's our shepherd and he takes care of us. Isaiah 40, 11. The Lord God is mentioned in verse 10. And then in verse 11, it says he protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. So sometimes when they're answering this question, the um, both who and what will be in the answer. And sometimes they're needing to kind of say it. So I wouldn't press too hard on having um, who is he and what does he do. Sometimes I do want you to make sure that you highlight that. But it'll probably just be obvious, um, the who and the what. So turning the page to top of 50, you might just mention that it was probably totally shocking to the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to hear Jesus say that he is the good shepherd. That would have been one more mind-boggling thing for them to hear, a hard-to-believe statement when Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. They're like, no, because you're not God. Those who were rejecting Jesus would have rejected that statement. According to verse 2, what actions does Yahweh carry out as a shepherd? You might add that phrase at the end of your question. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And I have comments just as I was reflecting, like that's making me rest and be still. And it gives me, keeps me safe. He gives me a place of nourishment. He tells me where to go. Then we looked at the word pastures. I think it's the Hebrew word na'ah. And pasture or meadow, abode of the shepherd, because it's where the sheep live. Um, the place the flock is kept. And it could be an open field or an enclosure, like a sheep pen. But while shepherds kept their flocks by night <laughs> out in the fields, they're usually out in the fields. And then um, the Hebrew word for quiet is, I believe it's manuha. I had three different words that came that um, I was looking at. Um, rest and quietness. But here's a definition from the theological word dictionary of the Old Testament. And this was very meaningful to me. So manuha is a resting place. This quiet, this quiet resting place. All right. This in Psalm 23 can be, um, I have a couple of nuances. So here's the definition. It can be a temporary place of rest that God sought out for his people, Israel. Or, or and, sorry, and, there is a more permanent place of rest, which would be the promised land. And this can also refer to the eternal resting place, like heaven, 
place of rest. So that may not be surprising to you, but I really liked seeing it here because um, he leads me beside quiet waters, you know, this place of rest. Right now he gives us a place of rest and there is a better one waiting for us, the permanent one waiting for us. Question um, coming up next is, do you find security and peace in the Lord's provision for you? If yes, then does your life show it? Um, does anyone want to comment on that? And I said, yes, I do most of the time until I just forget and get wound up and then my life doesn't show it. But I hope that it does show it more than not. Look at verse 3, Psalm 23, 3. What two things does Yahweh do for us and why? He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he does both of these things. He restores my soul and guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is such a big deal. And it's such a big deal that we're going to look at cross-references that um, also emphasize this concept. What does Yahweh do for us and why? Now, understanding why is as critical as understanding what. 1 Samuel 12, 22. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name. Psalm 106, 8. He saved them because of his name or for his name's sake. Isaiah 43, 25. He sweeps away transgressions for his name's sake. Ezekiel 36, I mean, our salvation is found in all of these verses, but um, Ezekiel 36 is just so clear. For his holy name's sake, he will gather Israel and bring them back to their land and do a mighty work of salvation in them. But this is new covenant language, which also explains our salvation. That God removes the heart of stone, our cold, dead heart, and gives his spirit to us. He cleanses us and gives us his spirit so that we may know him and obey him. And I just paraphrased everything that was in Ezekiel 36. Um, but that was a um, critical, um, major, eye-opening lesson to me when I was studying this passage in Ezekiel, when I was working on the book of Ezekiel. And he, why does he do what he does? For his holy name's sake. And Israel had profaned it. And he is showing his glory. And he's making a change. And the change that he makes is going to make him look good. And it's based on his reputation and his character. All right. We're just going to go back to Psalm 23 now. The central verse of the psalm is of great importance. Verse 4. So Psalm 23, 4. Have one lady just answer all four of these situations. What experience do you note? What's the place of crisis? It's the valley of the shadow of death. Um, another translation, the darkest valley. Uh, what's the perspective during the crisis? I will fear no evil. I won't be afraid. What's the reason for that perspective? Because God is with me. And what's the comfort during the crisis? God's rod and staff comfort me. And the comfort also would be because God is with me. Um, so that's um, kind of 
looking at each phrase of verse 4. And then I have comments on the shadow of death. In the middle of that paragraph, this word is used to convey a most extreme situation and danger. And then go to the last phrases. If you know that the Lord is your shepherd, you don't need to fear because he is with you. And the Lord declares this repeatedly. Don't be afraid. So let's remind ourselves of this uh, from these truths from Genesis 15.1. What does that say? Please go around the circle. Just keep it moving here, not trying to rush, but just to make it flow. And you can just call on ladies. I'm going to say, we're going to go around the circle, and here we go. Genesis 15.1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Do not fear. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That came at a time where Abraham, Abram had been um, exposed to or part of kind of the, a battle. So there was a circumstance where Abram could have really been afraid. So he, God didn't just like say it out of the blue. There was a circumstance where I think Abram was afraid. So God said, don't fear. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified of them. For it is the Lord God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Here Moses is talking to the Israelites. They're about to go into the promised land. They're about to go and have to fight the pagans in the land. Um, the big bad guys uh, have war. Don't be afraid of them. So there are circumstances, both of those occasions, where it's not just a philosophical statement. This is a real-life circumstance where the people would have been afraid. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. I have paraphrases here. I can't go anywhere that the Lord won't be with me. I can't flee from his presence. And then I just named heaven, Sheol, the Far East or the Far West. No darkness will um, hide me from him. But in every place, I love verse 10, his right hand will hold me. And then Isaiah 41, 10. I love this verse. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my right hand. And it's kind of funny to me to think of God using, I mean, it's just, what is this? Um, oh, I can't think of the phrase when you apply anthro something. When we talk about God as if he has the body and, you know, the hand of a man. And it just helps us understand his being a little bit. Even though he is not, well, Jesus was a man, right? Anyway, my thought is the right hand of the person is the hand of strength. So God is holding us with his right hand. And he's still powerful enough that he can do, hold off the enemy or do whatever he wants to with his left hand. But also he's not holding us, it doesn't say he's holding us with his left hand, which would be the weaker hand. So just more random thoughts that came to me when I was um, looking at those verses. At the top of page 52, please record what you learned from the following, following comforting verses in the New Testament. If you're running short on time, you could skip these. Otherwise, go around the circle. Matthew 28, 
Jesus said, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And remember, I am with you always. So we just have the context there. Anywhere you go, doing what Jesus tells us to do, we're not to be afraid. And he's with us. John 14, 16 through 18. He is sending the counselor, or he did send the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with us forever. And the Holy Spirit, when I have received him at salvation, he remains with me and in me. And Jesus said, I am coming to you. So he's showing that the Holy Spirit is his Holy Spirit that came to us. Romans 8, 35 through 39. There's no person or thing or experience that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ. No separation. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So hopefully those reiterate the promises of God that he is with us and we don't need to be afraid. Now back to Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. It is probable, possible, that the description of the Lord changes from that of what a shepherd does to that of being a host who invites a guest to a banquet. Mm, I don't think a lot of people talk about Psalm 23 with a change here. And I don't want to um, hurt anybody's feelings by (laughs) um, bringing that up. So we see a similarity. How are the actions of the host similar to the actions of the shepherd? The host prepares a table, provides nourishment. A shepherd does that. And he, this host is doing it in the presence of enemies. A shepherd takes care of his sheep and protects them from the wild animals. The host anoints with oil. That was a common um, practice of hospitality. And we also know that shepherds care for the sheep and they clean the sheep. The use of oil is sometimes a, a cleansing or a healing mechanism. And then in verse 6, it says, Goodness and loving kindness will follow all the days of our lives. And that doesn't have to be a, it doesn't even have to be mentioned as an action of the shepherd. But goodness and loving kindness make me think of the shepherd being tender. So if there's any comment or looking for that to be what the host does. Of course, it is really nice when the host is nice to you, isn't it? So I asked you, oh, I think you should just skip the next little thing of writing out Psalm 23, 6, because we're going to come to it again. Let's just go to the words. Goodness, Hebrew word is tov. T-O-V is how I see it, but the V is sometimes pronounced as a B. So they might have the word tov, T-O-B. So either way, tov or tov. Um, it's it's just a, a letter and a pronunciation and thing. Um, so it means good, beneficial, pleasant, favorable, happy, right. And then mercy is hesed. Steadfast love, covenant love, kindness, loving kindness. 
You don't need to do anything with the paragraph at the bottom. Let's go right up to the top of the next page. 53. In the literal Hebrew translation, what does verse 6 say? And that was back on page 49. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will return to the house of Yahweh for days without end. So what we're doing now is looking at Psalm 23 as a messianic psalm, and you can just skip to um, the second paragraph towards the end. Yahweh was the shepherd to his servant Jesus and delivered him through his darkest hours and will lead him back to the house of the Lord to dwell there and reign for eternity. That's how we see this as a messianic psalm. Jesus has gone to heaven, but he will return to the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and reign from there. Are there any final comments on Psalm 23 that anyone would like to share? I know for me, these two Psalms, wow, they just go together. They show me who Jesus is, what he did. They show his trust. And that's the biggest takeaway concept that we need to acknowledge with these psalms that Jesus trusted the Lord and praised him. Jesus was faithful to the Lord through it all. Well, that is all. I thank you again for um, your study and for leading ladies through the discussion of these psalms, 22 and 23. Thanks for listening. My in-depth Bible study workbooks on Job, Psalms, Ezekiel, Matthew, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Hebrews are available on Amazon. My coordinating lectures are available on my website and YouTube and other podcast episodes. I pray that God's Word will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path.